Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. An oil industry leader warning that President Biden is putting the U.S. in a precarious position by draining the emergency stockpile, while Biden denies he's doing it to help Democrats in the midterms. Dozens of House seats could flip in the November election. We look at eight of the key races to watch out for. Delaware Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester faced off with her Republican challenger Lee Murphy in an open debate. Inflation and abortion were among the top issues. Iranian troops are allegedly on the ground in Ukraine assisting Russia with drone strikes on civilian targets. We bring you the latest and analysis from an accomplished Middle East diplomat. Steve Bannon, the ex-advisor to former President Trump, has been sentenced to four months in prison. Here's what he said just before the sentencing. Remember, this illegitimate regime, their their judgment day is on 8 November when the Biden administration ends. I want to thank you all for coming. Thanks. By the way, and remember, take down the CCP. Thank you. Bannon was also fined $6,500, but he doesn't have to pay or go to prison just yet. Bannon's attorney plans to appeal the conviction, and the judge allowed the sentence to be delayed until after the appeal. In July, Bannon was convicted of two counts of contempt of Congress for not appearing to testify and for not handing over documents related to a subpoena from the January 6th House Committee. His attorney says the appeal of the conviction is, quote, bulletproof because Bannon was prohibited from explaining why he didn't comply with the subpoena. An oil CEO says the White House has put the United States in a precarious position by releasing so much oil from the U.S. reserves. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more on what he said. After President Biden Wednesday said he's releasing 15 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in an effort to lower gas prices, one American oil industry leader says the SPR has become the Strategic Political Reserve. Here's what American Petroleum Institute President and CEO Mike Summers told Fox Business Thursday. This is a very precarious position we're in today at a time of dramatic geopolitical upheaval. We need to have that SPR in place and at at the right levels dealing with the current geopolitical situation we're in today. The SPR is a stockpile of crude oil owned by the U.S. government. It's a backup in case the commercial oil supply is disrupted. Last November, Biden first announced he was releasing oil from the SPR to lower gas prices. He called it the largest release in U.S. history. Since then, he's released a lot more. Right now, the emergency reserve is at its lowest level in nearly 40 years. But the difference now, according to oil industry leader Mike Summers, is we use 27 percent more oil than we did back then, suggesting we should have more oil in the reserves. Some Republican lawmakers and oil industry officials have accused Biden of misusing the SPR for political reasons. They allege Biden is releasing the oil now to try to keep gas prices lower before the midterms which could help Democrat candidates. But Biden Wednesday denied those claims. I've been doing this for how long now? It's not politically motivated at all. Biden has blamed high fuel prices on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But oil industry leader Mike Summers blames Biden's policies, which he says have clamped down on U.S. oil production. Summers told Fox under Biden federal oil leases are at record low levels. He said federal leases haven't been this few since World War II. 
This week, the White House said it plans to refill the SPR when oil prices fall below $72 per barrel. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. U.S. railroad companies rejected a new sick leave proposal yesterday from a union of track maintenance workers that is threatening to go on strike. The Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way employees says it will strike as soon as November 19th without a new labor deal. The union proposed seven paid sick days, up to 56 hours per year, as part of a new contract agreement, which the railroads rejected. The railroads said in a statement, quote, rail unions have agreed repeatedly in previous contracts that short-term absences would be unpaid in favor of higher compensation for days worked and more generous sickness benefits for longer absences. If the union were to go on strike, it is expected that other freight railroad unions would honor their picket lines, causing the nation's major freight railroads to grind to a halt and stopping the movement of an estimated 30 percent of the nation's freight. Negotiations are scheduled to resume in the next two weeks. Both sides are issuing warnings. The Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way employees represents 23,000 rail workers. It is the third largest rail workers union. And turkeys might be more expensive and harder to find this Thanksgiving. In the case of cost per pound, birds cost about 73% more now than they did last Thanksgiving. In dollars and cents, the USDA says that comes out to about $1.99 a pound compared to a buck 15 last year. It costs farmers more to raise turkeys now, but when it comes to availability, blame the bird flu. It typically spreads during colder months, but farmers have been reporting a large number of cases since July, and that's when producers generally begin breeding for the holiday season. But experts say there's a chance suppliers could add more turkeys to the market, quote, at the last minute. While 31 House seats are rated as toss-ups, there are eight key seats that could flip in November. Redistricting plays a big part in how the districts are leaning. Let's take a look. In Iowa's 3rd District, incumbent Democrat Cindy Axony will face off against Trump-endorsed Zach Nunn. After redistricting, this new district now includes nine counties that tend to vote Republican. The Cook Political Report rates this race as a lean Republican. In Pennsylvania's 7th District, Democratic incumbent Susan Wilde will face off against Republican Lisa Scheller. Wilde topped Scheller in 2020, but redistricting now favors Republicans. The Cook Political Report rates this race as a lean Republican. In Tennessee's 5th District, the Democratic incumbent is retiring, and the race will be between Democrat Heidi Campbell and Republican Andy Ogles. Democrats have held this seat since 1875, but redistricting split the city of Nashville. The Cook Political Report now rates this district as safe Republican. Over in Michigan, Republican John Gibbs will compete against Democrat Hillary Skelton in the 3rd District. Trump-endorsed Gibbs beat incumbent Congressman Peter Miser in the GOP primary, but redistricting now favors the Democrats. The Cook Political Report rates it as lean Democrat. And in Ohio's 9th District, longtime Democratic Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur faces a challenge from Republican J.R. Majewski. Under the new map, the district now includes Ohio's more conservative rural northwestern corner, while Democratic-leaning Cleveland is no longer in the district. The Cook Political Report rates it as a toss-up. Staying in Ohio, longtime Republican Congressman Steve Shabbat could be unseated by Democrat Greg Landsman. Redistricting now puts Shabbat at a disadvantage. The Cook Political Report rates it as toss-up. Over in Texas, District 15, first-time candidates Democrat Michelle Vallejo and Republican Monica De La Cruz are vying for an open seat. The Cook Political Report rates it lean Republican after redistricting. 
And in New Hampshire's 1st District, incumbent Democrat Chris Pappas faces a challenge from Republican Caroline Leavitt. The Cook Political Report rates it as toss-up. And over in Delaware, the University of Delaware held a debate last night for the two candidates running for the state's sole congressional district. Let's take a look at what they discussed. Democratic Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester of Delaware and her Republican challenger Lee Murphy took part in the debate Thursday night. A big issue they discussed was rising inflation and what the government should do about it. The moderator asked the Congresswoman whether the Democrats' Inflation Reduction Act actually reduces inflation. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which we passed, really, to me, is about Delaware families and the things that I've heard up and down this state. Um, everything from lowering our prescription drug prices for our seniors um, to making sure that our energy costs are lowered. And it is actually paid for by really taxing those businesses and those individuals that are at that top tier percent. Some businesses that have never paid taxes. Murphy, meanwhile, has a different outlook of the economy. And let's face it, the government is spending money, printing money, trillions of dollars in unnecessary spending. We have to get the foot off the neck of our small businesses in this state. We have to let them do what they do best, and that is to create jobs. We have to get rid of unnecessary regulations, lower taxes, make it easier for people to do business in this state. Another big issue during the debate was abortion and the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe versus Wade. I'm a big supporter of the Women's Reproductive Health Act in Congress, which we passed in the House. Um, I believe, and I've said it on the floor of the House, I've said it here in Delaware, um, I believe there is no room in women's womb for politicians. Um, I, I just want to be clear about that. Murphy says he is pro-life, but agrees that states could decide either way. I agree with the decision the Supreme Court decision, the constitutional decision to return the right, this important decision-making process back to the states. As people know here in Delaware, it's, it's a right. It's a protected right here in Delaware. And we, if someone wants to have an abortion here in Delaware, it's protected. Delaware is safely democratic, and the race is not expected to be competitive in the November midterms. Election officials in Clark County, Nevada, say they're ready for midterm elections. And to reassure the public, they hosted a tour of the facilities yesterday. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on the tour. Reporters on the tour saw the rooms that will be used to count ballots. It's activated. As well as a demonstration on a voting machine, including all the various options and menus that voters will face. Joe Gloria is the registrar of voters. He said the goal of the tour was to be as transparent as possible with the public. Are we ready? Absolutely. We are ready. Uh, all of our processes are in place. Uh, preparation looks good. Uh, we've had our important meetings with law enforcement, with other agencies and entities that help to support us, and we're ready to support the election. The aim was also to reassure people that the machines and systems can be trusted. On Tuesday, our accuracy certification board met and verified that the system is accurately tabulating votes and that the correct software is running on all of our systems. So we're very confident in the system and we know that it counts accurately. Gloria said they're prepared to deal with any physical violence or threats during the electoral process. We have an outstanding relationship with all of our law enforcement here in Clark County. 
We've already briefed them. We've had long conversations about what our expectations are. Uh, they're partners with us. And so they know that we'll do due diligence first in any report. And when we call them, that we need them to respond, and they've all agreed to do so. Voters will have a few options on how and when they cast their ballot. We have seen an increase in mail ballots. Um, however, every election is different. So it just depends what the voter you know, chooses at the time. There may be uh, more folks uh, going you know, during early voting um, versus going on election day. But we will see once uh, the election comes to fruition, yes. There are 1.3 million registered voters in Clark County. Early voting begins on Saturday, October 22nd. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The grand jury investigation into election interference in Georgia has heard testimony from two more prominent witnesses. Pat Cipollone, former President Trump's top lawyer in the White House, appeared in Fulton County following testimony to a federal grand jury in Washington, D.C. Cipollone was also a key witness for the January 6th House Select Committee. Former U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler was also brought in to provide testimony to the Georgia grand jury investigation. Loeffler did so as text messages surfacing, indicating that Re Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene asked her about challenging the election results. The former senator from Georgia changed her mind about participating after seeing the January 6th Capitol breach, calling it, quote, abhorrent. Senator Lindsey Graham will have to testify about possible election interference. A court just ruled that a subpoena from the Fulton County District Attorney is valid, but they restricted the scope of the questioning. Graham can't be questioned about any research he was doing about whether to vote to certify the 2020 election results, specifically his, quote, investigatory fact-finding on telephone calls to Georgia election officials. Graham called Georgia Secretary of State Brad Reffensberger and his staff in the weeks after the election. But the ruling stated that Graham can still be questioned about communications with Trump's campaign, about its post-election efforts in Georgia, public statements regarding the 2020 election, and any alleged efforts to influence election officials. And coming up, at a farm in Arizona, grieving parents are healing from losing their children. They come from around the globe for the community at the patch of farmland. We have that and more after the short break. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis yesterday pledged no vaccine mandates for children in Florida schools. This after CDC advisors recommended adding COVID-19 vaccines to the immunization schedule for children in a unanimous vote. As long as I'm around and as long as I'm kicking and screaming, uh, there will be no COVID shot mandates for your kids. That is your decision to make as a parent. Uh, these are our new shots. I get a kick out of it when people kind of compare it to MMR and stuff, things that have been around for decades and decades. Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo tweeted yesterday that thanks to Governor Ron DeSantis, COVID mandates are not allowed in Florida and are not pushed into schools. He also wrote that he continues to recommend against COVID vaccines for healthy kids. Hurricane Ian is proving to be a costly disaster. More than a billion dollars in federal support has been provided to Florida and residents affected by the storm. According to FEMA, $545 million has gone to households and over $300 million to the state. Some of the ways the federal funding is helping Floridians recover, nearly 6,000 free roofs through Operation Blue Roof, providing disaster unemployment assistance and covering hotel stays for those who need it. Also, the U.S. Small Business Administration has provided $130 million in disaster loans to employers. 
and the National Flood Insurance Program has paid out $98 million to at least 40,000 people who filed flood insurance claims. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency said it's investigating whether Mississippi state agencies discriminated against the state's majority black capital city by refusing to fund improvements for its failing water system. The announcement came days after leaders of two congressional committees said they were starting a joint investigation. The water crisis left most homes and businesses in Jackson without running water for several days in late August and early September. Heavy rainfall in late August made problems worse at Jackson's main water treatment facility. Republican Governor Tate Reeves declared an emergency August 29th, and the State Health Department and Mississippi Emergency Management Agency have been overseeing operations at the facility since. About 80% of Jackson's residents are black, and about a quarter of the population lives in poverty. By the time Reeves issued the emergency order, Jackson residents had already been told for a month to boil their water to kill possible contaminants. Elon Musk says Tesla cars will not be approved as fully self-driving this year. This means the company is not yet able to satisfy authorities that its cars can be driven without someone behind the wheel. The automaker sells a $15,000 software add-on called Full Self-Driving, or SFD. It enables vehicles to change lanes and park autonomously. It's an upgrade from Tesla's standard autopilot feature that enables cars to steer, accelerate, and brake within their lanes without driver intervention. However, Tesla says the cars still need to be driven with human oversight. Autonomous vehicle would require regulatory approval in certain states like California. Musk said he expects to release an upgraded FSD software at the end of the year. Expect snowy roads this winter if you live up north. This is the third straight year the U.S. has a shortage of snowplow drivers. Missouri sees the difficulty ahead and is preparing for it with a snow cleanup rehearsal. The state was only able to get two-thirds of its snowplow drivers involved in the rehearsal for winter. That means Missouri is 30% short of the snowplow operators needed, double the amount missing last year. The shortage means dangerous road conditions are more likely, and it also creates a danger for first responders. In general, the southern part of Missouri doesn't see many winter storms, so the state can focus resources up north. But this year, the Missouri Department of Transportation is expecting snow across the whole state. As many states prepare for a snowy winter, 84% of survey respondents report higher to much higher snowplow operator vacancies across the U.S. The survey was conducted by the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. A former university gynecologist is found guilty of five counts of sexually abusing female patients. Dr. James Heaps was a longtime UCLA gynecologist. He was indicted last year on multiple sex offenses, including sexual exploitation of a patient. Women said the university ignored their complaints about him and deliberately concealed his abuse. In the wake of the scandal that erupted in 2019 following the doctor's arrest, the university agreed to pay $700 million in lawsuit payouts to his victims. Heaps faced 21 counts total. The Los Angeles jury found him not guilty on seven, guilty on five, and were deadlocked on the remaining charges. He is scheduled to be sentenced for the five guilty counts on November 17th. Losing a child is one of the most painful tragedies at a farm in Arizona. Grieving parents work on coping and healing from their loss. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Joanne Cacciatore has the name of her baby spelled out in beads on her left wrist. Standing before her is a mother, grief-stricken by her young son's death. 
Behind her is a man with a tattoo of three little ducks, one for each of his children who was murdered. April 10th of last year, uh, my ex, the mother, and my children uh, murdered all three of my kids. Soon, the morning fog will lift and the quiet will end. But for a moment, all is still. Beauty and pain coexist here. You know, this is the place where they intersect. After Cacciatore's baby passed away in 1994, she enrolled in college for the first time to study grief, and she started a support group and foundation for others like her. Ultimately, her pursuits have converged on the farm, which opened five years ago. People in mourning from around the globe journey to this patch of farmland. Here, they try to deal with the pain of their loss. It doesn't matter what happened to your loved one, um, you come here and you're with other people that are going through the same amount of pain. The farm is home to dozens of animals that are central to many visitors' experience. For Liz Castleman, she has come to feel her son Charlie's presence. He died before even reaching his third birthday. I think you can just feel how the house itself and the, the whole property and every being here just is sort of holding and carrying so much pain, so much pain and so much love at the same time. These parents say they may never get over the deaths of their children, but at the farm, they work on learning to cope. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, the UK warns the Chinese regime of consequences. It's after an attack on protesters at the gate of the Chinese consulate. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. Welcome back. Seven people are indicted for an alleged plot by the Chinese regime to coerce a dissident in the United States to return to China. Two were New York residents and were arrested yesterday morning. The remaining five defendants are at large in China. One arrested suspect allegedly acted under the direct orders of various Chinese communist officials. It was to conduct surveillance on the Chinese national and to try to coerce the individual back to China. The FBI says the victim had fled to the United States due to persecution in China. The indictment states that the efforts went back to at least 2017. The indictment also alleged defendants engaged in money laundering to fund illegal Chinese Communist Party activities in the United States. And Britain has warned that diplomatic consequences will follow if China does not waive immunity for officials charged with assaulting a protester at the Chinese consulate in Manchester. PMs press the government to go further and take action before the police investigation concludes, but the consulate denies dragging the protester in. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I... Foreign Office Minister Jesse Norman told MPs that the Chinese ambassador has been summoned over the incident that a Hong Kong pro-democracy campaigner was dragged into the grounds of the Chinese consulate in Manchester and beaten. We have made it absolutely clear to the Chinese embassy that the apparent behaviour of consulate general officials during the incident, as it appears from the footage, which even now more of which is coming out as we uh, discuss this, is completely unacceptable. Greater Manchester Police have started an investigation and said it's a complex and sensitive inquiry and may take some time. 
Norman said the Foreign Secretary will wait for the result of the independent police investigation. And let me be clear that if the police determined that there are grounds to charge any officials, we would expect the Chinese consulate to waive immunity for those officials. If they do not, then diplomatic consequences will follow. Conservative former leader Sir Ian Duncan Smith used an urgent question in the House of Commons to ask about the role of the Chinese Consul General Zhang Xiyuan. Zhang admitted to Sky News that he had pulled the hair of the protester and said it was his duty because the protester had insulted his country and his leader. But I now urge the government to be much, much clearer than just using diplomatic language. I urge the government to make it clear in the light of this new evidence that it's not just unacceptable that any consulate individual should have taken part in anything like this, but that any consulate individual who has proved to have been one of the perpetrators of this outrageous and violent attack on Mr Chen will be made persona non grata immediately and sent back to China. The attacked Hong Kong protester spoke at a press conference in central London on Wednesday. Bob Chang said he and others were holding a peaceful anti-government protest outside the consulate on Sunday when masked men came out, tore down the protesters' banners and dragged him inside the building's gates. Because I was near the gates, they pulled me inside. Police tried to pull me back out but didn't succeed. So in the end, I was pulled inside and was beaten up. Chang said consulate staff beat his eye and the corner of his left eye was swollen. His head and back still hurts. The worst part is his spine and there are some internal injuries. He had to be rescued by a police officer who would not normally be allowed on consulate grounds without permission due to fears for his safety. I believe the UK is a very safe place with freedom of speech, that consular staff can so brazenly pull someone inside and beat them up in broad daylight is unimaginable. It's shocking that this should happen. Chang said he fears for his family's safety and said he will be silenced, but he's committed to helping with the investigation. The Chinese consulate in Manchester claimed in the letter to police that protesters had stormed the compound and members of staff had been injured. Zheng, the consul general, claiming Chang was dragged into the ground because he would not let go of a staff member's neck. Google was hit with a $161 million fine from Indian regulators over anti-competitive practices. The Competition Commission of India imposed a penalty of about 13 billion rupees on Google. That's for abusing its, quote, dominant position in multiple markets in the Android mobile device ecosystem. The commission has also asked Google to modify its conduct in relation to anti-competitive practices. In its inquiry, the commission concluded, since Google owns the Android operating software and allows some of its own products to come pre-installed, it has an unfair edge in the market. Google is yet to comment publicly on the matter. India's competition watchdog is also separately investigating Google's in-app payment system and its business conduct in the smart TV market. And just ahead, who will replace Liz Truss as the United Kingdom's next prime minister? We'll tell you what we know so far here on NTD News Today.
Italy's Giorgia Maloney told the president today that she's ready to become prime minister. She said she is able to form a new government swiftly despite some tension within her right-wing coalition. Obviously, we now await the decisions of the President of the Republic, whom we thank for his magisterium. At such a particular moment in the nation's history, and obviously we are already announcing that we are ready, because we want to proceed as quickly as possible. Thank you all and have a good day. Maloney of the Brothers of Italy party met the President alongside her main allies. Those of the leader of the Conservative League Party and founder of the conservative Forza Italia Party. The president is expected to call her back to his office later in the day to ask her formally to become prime minister. The new cabinet is likely to be sworn in over the weekend. The conservative bloc won a commanding parliamentary majority at a September 25th general election. It was Maloney's party that took the most votes. The victory put her in position to become Italy's first female prime minister. Who will replace Liz Truss as Britain's prime minister? Truss announced her resignation after just 44 days in office, the shortest term in British history, leading to yet another leadership race. Here's more. Rishi Sunak, who was runner-up against Truss over the summer, is a firm favourite. The former finance minister sounded an early warning about Truss's economic agenda. Rising inflation is the enemy that makes everyone poorer and puts at risk your homes and your savings. He first gained popularity, steering Britain through the COVID pandemic, dropping conservative instincts for a small state and borrowing massively to support workers and businesses. He was the preferred candidate amongst conservative MPs in the summer leadership race, but lost out in the membership vote. Many of them saw him as responsible for Boris Johnson's downfall. Which brings us to the next potential candidate. And it's perfectly true, it's perfectly true that I leave not at a time of my choosing. Johnson was kicked out of office in July following a string of scandals and still faces an investigation for allegedly lying in Parliament about parties held during lockdown. However, the face of Brexit was once seen by many as a vote winner. In the 2019 general election, He won votes in parts of the country that had never backed the Conservatives before. Johnson was on a holiday in the Caribbean when Truss announced she was quitting. But British media reports on Thursday suggested he was flying back. Seemingly loved and loathed in equal measure, some Conservative MPs may quit if he wins. Hasta la vista, baby. Thank you. The third candidate likely to enter the race is Penny Mordaunt. A former Defence Secretary, she only just missed reaching the final two in the summer leadership race. Mordaunt, like Johnson and Sunak, was a passionate supporter of leaving the European Union and is seen by some as having broad appeal in the party. The PM is detained on urgent business. She won plaudits for her performance in Parliament on Monday when she defended the government, even as it reversed most of its policies. The Prime Minister is not uh, under a desk as the... Jeremy Hunt, the current finance minister, has ruled himself out. To enter the contest, the candidate needs the votes of 100 MPs by Monday. Any more U-turns? Thank you, sir. 
Footage released by NATO on Thursday shows fighter jets from the U.S., Italy, and Poland. They're flying in the skies over NATO's eastern flank as part of NATO's air shielding mission. The lineup of aircraft included Italian Eurofighters, Polish F-16s, and MiG-29s, as well as United States F-22s. The planned one-day series of maneuvers was conducted from Wask Air Base in Poland on October 12th. NATO's air shielding mission is an increased air and missile defense posture along the alliance's eastern flank, implemented in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Iran is advising its citizens not to go to Ukraine, and it's urging ones already there to leave the country. This comes after the U.S. accused Iran of providing drone support to Russia. We bring you some analysis from a key player in international diplomacy. Please welcome Arie Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords and author of Let My People Know. Thank you for your time today, Arie. Thank you for having me. The White House says Iranian troops are directly engaged on the ground in Crimea, helping Russia use Iranian-made drones to attack Ukraine's power stations. What is the significance of this? We shouldn't be surprised by this. If we can remember when the Russia invasion of Ukraine happened, The only place that Russia was invited in polite company at that point in time was when Russia was pushing America to get back into the Iran deal. At that point in time, I was on your station saying that we shouldn't be calling this the Iran deal. We should be calling it the Russia-Iran deal. Russia and Iran are linked in meaningful ways. And therefore, it's not surprising that when Russia needs reinforcements, that not only are they using Iranian technology, but they're using Iranian troops in order to perfect the use of that technology. So you touched on the Iran deal. What is Israel's role in this? Well, Israel has an immediate existential threat by Iran if Iran gets a nuclear weapon. Uh, Under President Obama, essentially there was a glide path to an internationally endorsed nuclear weapon in the so-called Iran deal. President Trump wisely exited that deal. The Iranians weren't even following by that deal. And then President Biden on day number one has tried to force our foreign policy to get back into that Iran deal. And basically what that did was said, Iran, you can make it. And we are not only going to enable you to rejoin the community of nations, but we're going to fill your coffers with so much money that way you're going to be rebounding back in a meaningful way. Now, we know what happens when Iran's coffers are filled. They fund Hezbollah. They fund the Houthis. They create terror all around the world. And they build up their infrastructure from South America all the way to the Middle East. It's an immediate existential threat to Israel, but it's a threat to all of the West. What can we expect to see happen with these terror groups with Iran's coordination with Russia here? Yeah, so what you'll have is some pretty advanced drone weaponry sitting in Crimea right now, but attacking, and you'll notice, not military installations, but electrical power stations. It's a direct attack against civilians, which the Iranians are fantastic at. They avoid direct military-to-military interactions because at the end of the day, they're likely to lose those. But they are fantastic terrorists. They shoot from civilian areas at civilian areas in order to cause the most harm to civilians. This is their MO, and this is what they're actively doing right now. And to me, it's terrifying because the greatest cause or the greatest loss in war are the civilians sitting on the side. What does Iran gain from helping Russia in Crimea? Well, Iran gains... uh, further strengthening of their alliance with Russia. And you've seen China and Russia and Iran become stronger and stronger together, less in order to be able to fight Ukraine, but to push back against the West as a whole. And when people say the West, at the end of the day, they're talking about the United States of America.
You talk about choosing sides here. Now, the Biden administration is looking to mount international pressure on Tehran to stop helping Russia. What do we expect to see happen? I, I doubt that people will take the Biden administration all that seriously. It's very difficult for us to now convince our international allies that because they've now put drones in Crimea, that suddenly the entire Biden administration policy towards Iran is the opposite. You'll even look at the language that they use talking about the Iranian troops, a small amount of troops. Who cares whether it's a small amount of troops or a large amount of troops? You have Iranian troops actively working with the Russians to attack Ukraine. doesn't matter if it's one or it's a million. It's a meaningful action by a country that we should be standing strongly against and not sending the mixed messages. Very in-depth analysis here. Ari Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Russian President Vladimir Putin on Thursday inspected a training ground for mobilized troops. It's intended to show his personal support for soldiers heading to fight in Ukraine. The training ground is in a city southeast of Moscow. Putin was accompanied by Russia's defense minister, who briefed him on the training. Footage showed a figure who appeared to be Putin lying flat on the ground and firing a rifle. The visit came a day after Putin raised Russia's war footing and declared martial law in four occupied regions of Ukraine. Putin last month declared a partial mobilization to call up hundreds of thousands of extra troops. He said last Friday the mobilization would be over within two weeks, and on Thursday he ordered all Russia's regions to do more to support the Army's needs. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, coastal communities in Denmark grow food in underwater gardens. Members pay about $65 annually to enjoy the harvest of mussels, oysters, and seaweed. And warm weather threatens the future of skiing and snowboarding in New Zealand. One ski destination has closed three weeks early due to a lack of snow. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. In Denmark, coastal communities are banding together to grow greener crops, but the fresh food isn't produced on land. It's grown underwater. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. This boat is sailing in search of food, but its crew isn't going fishing. Instead, they're checking on a bountiful crop growing underwater. Now we are out at the allotment, and uh, we can see uh, our area. Is, uh, is marked by uh, these uh, yellow uh, poles uh, uh, all around. The maritime garden produces mussels, oysters, and seaweed. The community uh, grows uh, mussels and seaweed for own use, so we, we are not uh, selling or distributing uh, it uh, in, in any ways, but uh, we, we just uh, produce it for ourselves and our members. Founded in 2015, the garden is one of the largest of its kind in Denmark. Members pay about $65 for an annual subscription. They can, uh, when they are members, uh, they can uh, go and, uh, and get as many uh, mussels uh, they, they want and uh, bring it home. There's an environmental component to the gardens as well. Mussels are known for their ability to filter harmful nutrients from the water. Say one big mussel cleans about five liters of water in an hour. So you can see the potential in, in removing nutrition uh, things from, from the water and concentrate it in the muscle 
and, 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 and get good meat out of it. The nearby Baltic Sea is one of the most polluted bodies of water in the world. The mussels could help restore the waters. They also make for a tasty meal. When uh, the, the mussels and, and the seaweed uh, grows, we, we, we take it out of the water afterwards and eat it so that we remove all these uh, excess nutrition uh, from, from the waters. And we have uh, nice food. Members gather once a month to check on their crops and perform upkeep. During a recent gathering, they were treated to a feast of mussel soup. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A ski destination in New Zealand has closed three weeks early due to a lack of snow. The disastrous season is raising questions about the future of skiing and snowboarding in the country. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. New Zealand's Tūroa Ski Resort should be a winter wonderland this time of year. Its deep snowpack makes it famous for spring skiing, but this season it's largely barren. So it's been a tough season so far. Um, we've had some pretty decent snowfalls, but they've generally been followed by rain events, which has washed a lot of the snow away. So, uh, and it's been a bit warm this winter too over the whole country, so um, we're really lacking, lacking that snow this year. The ski area was forced to close for the season three weeks earlier than planned. Its 50 snowmaking machines proved no match for the warm temperatures. I would expect to see all of this being white most of the, uh, all, of this, uh, all of the winter season. Um, we're coming into spring now, so the temperatures are increasing, so it would slowly retreat back up the hill, but um, generally this should be white at the moment, yeah. New Zealand's National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research says climate change is a significant factor. The country experienced its warmest winter on record for the third year in a row. It's heartbreaking to see the weather like, you, you know, you, you kind of move down here um, with, you sort of sacrifice six months of your life to commit to skiing and when you do that and then you can't ski, it's quite disheartening and yeah, heartbreaking. The pandemic disrupted the previous two seasons, leaving the ski area on the brink of bankruptcy. Ruapehu Alpine Lifts owns Turoa and another nearby resort. Last year, the company lost nearly $3.5 million and its total debt climbed to almost $17 million. I've just sorted out this van and um, I'm traveling down South Island tomorrow for about two to three weeks and um, just gonna be ski bumming it down south for a bit, yeah. Should the ski area be forced to close permanently, it would leave North Island without any major skiing destinations. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. American Airlines execs have decided to do away with first-class seating. The company is dropping its first-class cabins on all international flights and replacing them with more business-class seats. The move was announced yesterday in response to customer demand, with the company's chief commercial officer saying more business-class seats is, quote, what our customers most want or are most willing to pay for. Looking for a new adventure at sea, Royal Caribbean International is providing a first look at its newest travel experience, the Icon of the Seas. The cruise line says the Icon of the Seas will top any trip it's ever done before and will provide a perfect family getaway. The company says some of the onboard amenities include the largest water park at sea, seven swimming pools, each one with a different theme, plus unparalleled views of the ocean. The ship will also feature more than 40 restaurants, bars, and nightclubs. The new room designs can accommodate families in groups of three, four, five, or more people. The Icon of the Seas won't set sail until January 2024, but people can start booking their trips starting October 25th. Loyalty members get early access on October 24th. 
And just ahead, a rare set of Stradivarius instruments highlight a classical concert at the Spanish Royal Palace. It's the only complete collection in the world decorated by this master craftsman. Details to come on NTD News Today. Spain is celebrating 250 years since the arrival of Stradivarius instruments at the Royal Palace. The violins and violas are the only full collection in the world decorated by the master craftsman. The music of Joseph Haydn's seven last words streams through the Royal Palace of Madrid. Playing on this rare set of Stradivarius instruments is the La España Quartet, named after one of the most famous melodies of the Renaissance. Each string of an instrument of the violin family has its own personality. You play a cello with a wonderful G string, even more wonderful than the Stradivarius one. But suddenly, the D string is much less grateful. The balance of this instrument is amazing. The four strings are 100%. All four collect all the virtues that you can expect from each of the four strings, without having any of their defects. The Spanish Royal Collection is composed of the Palatino Quartet, two violins, a viola contralto, a violoncello, and also the undecorated violoncello 1700. This set makes Spain the only country in the world to own a complete series of decorated Stradivarius. Both the tops, the rings, and the peck box have unique drawings designed and made by Antonio Stradivari himself. They were built as the quintet for the Spanish court. Antonio Stradivari's instruments are considered some of the finest ever made. His hometown, Cremona, in northern Italy, is renowned for its traditional violin craftsmanship. Historians say that in 1702, when King Philip V of Spain passed through Cremona, Stradivari wanted to offer him a selection of his own instruments. But the promise wasn't fulfilled until 70 years later by his youngest son, Paolo. The instruments eventually went to King Carlos IV, a great music lover and violinist in the late 18th century. We try to maintain a balance between the artwork, that it is a Stradivarius and the instrument, because it's an instrument and you have to play it. When they're on display in the showcases, they have a constant temperature and humidity. But at the same time, at rehearsals and concerts, it's when they really come to life as musical instruments, because Stradivarius crafted them to be played. It's estimated that Antonio Stradivari made just over 1,000 instruments, of which 600 have been preserved. The violins he produced in the 17th and 18th centuries can sell for millions of dollars. We live in an age where the freedom to walk anywhere is hampered, especially for children. Could a walking school bus be a safe alternative for them? How does it work? Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Walking to school where you live close enough sounds like a great idea. The children get their dose of fresh air and are energized before their classes. But in the US, only about 11% of children walk to school and that rate hasn't changed in a decade. A new study measured whether active commuting persists over time. Researchers in New Jersey surveyed parents and caregivers about school travel habits between 2009 and 2017. 
they found that more than three quarters of the children who engaged in active commuting continued to do so and were seven times more likely to continue the habit. So why is this important? Well, most kids don't achieve the level of recommended physical activity, which is 60 minutes per day. Active commuting is one way to get that activity. Schools and communities need to encourage active commuting in the early grades. Where parents perceive their neighborhoods safe from crime, the children were two and a half times more likely to engage in active commuting. The most persistent barrier to active commuting is the distance to school. If distance is the impediment, perhaps parents could arrange remote drop-off points for a walking school bus. Volunteer parents could chaperone the trip. This would certainly reduce the twice-daily vehicle congestion around schools. This is certainly something to consider if your young ones aren't getting enough physical activity. One of the most endangered species in the world in Mississippi. The Institute for Marine Mammal Studies has recorded a Kemp's Ridley sea turtle nest on Ship Island. They're typically found in South Texas and Mexico. The nest was documented by a National Park Service ranger on the island earlier this year. Protective signage and barriers are protecting the hatchlings, and the nest has been monitored by experts for months during surveys of the island. Following the BP oil spill in 2010 and numerous hurricanes, the findings are good news for the islands. Four other nests on the beach are likely to contain loggerhead sea turtles. Experts say the fact that there are sea turtles on the island show that restoration efforts have established a habitat fit for sea turtle nesting. A Texas woman is recovering after she was gored by a bison. Rebecca Clark shared this video on social media in the hopes of educating others. She says she was on a hike earlier this month in Caprock Canyon State Park when she came upon several bison. Clark tried to slowly walk past them, but one of them charged her. As she ran, she says the bison gored her and knocked her face first into a thorny mesquite bush. She texted her son and some friends who contacted authorities who rescued her. According to the park's incident report, Clark suffered a two to three inch puncture wound on her back. She says she is now doing well and plans to continue hiking. The Texas Parks and Wildlife Department reminds visitors to give bison plenty of space, staying at least 50 yards away. They say if the bison change their behavior, just leave the area. The ZSL London Zoo has revealed the names of three critically endangered Sumatran tiger cubs that were born at the Conservation Zoo in June. The trio will be called Inca, Zach, and Crispin. The zoo said the three names were decided by ZSL supporters. They competed for a chance to name them at the charity safari in the city gala last month. The auction raised nearly $60,000. Female Inca and males Zach and Crispin are part of a global conservation effort to protect their species. It's part of a collaborative European breeding program among zoos. With only around 300 Sumatran tigers left in the wild, the three new cubs are a major boost to their species. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.